start off with, can you just give the audience a bit of a summary, who you are, where you're from, and what's your background? Sure. So Ryan Condon, I'm the CEO of Satisfied. We're a customer and employee experience management company. And uh, we just help organizations, mostly in the equipment sector, collect insights from their customers and employees to be able to drive improvement in their organizations. We are based out of Austin, Texas. And a little bit of my background, uh, I actually grew up in Naperville, Illinois, about 30 miles outside of Chicago, and got tired of the uh, cold weather, so I had to get out of there and move to Texas. But uh, went to Western Michigan and Kalamazoo, studied finance. My first career out of school, I was a precious metals options trader for SwiftBank in Zurich. And uh, it had been a lifelong dream since a kid to become a trader. And I did that for a number of years and, and realized that it wasn't really my passion. Um, an opportunity came up to uh, start a business with my father back in Chicago. And so I left Zurich, went home, and in 1998, founded Satisfied. Wow. Well, what didn't you like about the, the trading side? You know, I think that it felt like every day was sort of a new gamble. And maybe that's not the reality for more seasoned traders, but from the ones that I know, kind of every day you're, you're going in there and you're kind of duking it out. And mm. the one thing that I've sort of learned over the years is I really love to be able to sort of work through incremental improvement and, and incremental enhancement, right? And so I don't necessarily want to come in and fight the same day over or a variation of the same day over. I want to build something and improve it and build it and improve it so that you get to a place where it's kind of, you know, it's just sort of much bigger than, than when you started. And I, I felt like trading was really different than that. Yeah. And then, so you said your father, you co-founded it with your father, you said? Yep. Yeah. So uh, my dad was a sales guy for, you know, growing up, he sold, actually started out in ag, in ag selling chemicals uh, for Elanco, um, which is Eli Lilly. And so he'd been kind of in and around the, the agricultural business for, for most of his career. And when I was pretty young, he switched over into kind of marketing incentive programs and things like that. And when we founded the business, he was working for a company out of Detroit selling uh, these customer SAT programs. And uh, John Deere was one of his big customers. And so uh, things weren't going so well with that, with that business that he was working at. And so he called me up and asked me if I want to start a business with him. Uh, I'm not sure either of us had any idea uh, what that meant, but I said, sure. And uh, came home. I was at a place where I was about ready to make a change myself. And so I said, sure. Came home. We uh, put a couple of fold, uh, folding desks in my old bedroom in my mom and dad's house. And the business was born. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> That's crazy. So how long did it take before you, you knew what the business was going to be and all that sort of stuff? What did you know from day one? Yeah, day one. You know, a real testament to my father. My dad has always had really amazing relationships with people. Uh, he's just a, he's a great guy and he had really deep relationships in the ag community and at John Deere. And so he, you know, had negotiated the whole uh, transition from the company that was providing the services before over to our business. And so we started day one with a client and it was just a matter of, you know, getting everything stood up and processing everything and, and making sure that they didn't have any interruption in their data collection process. And so that was the real challenge in the first kind of, I don't know, year of the business going from not knowing really anything about that business at all, you know, on the operational side to having to stand the whole thing up and, and get it running. This podcast episode was sponsored by Boom and Bucket. I love that name. Such a good name for a company, Boom and Bucket. Boom and Bucket was started by two ex-Caterpillar employees 
and is the easiest way to buy and sell heavy equipment. If you're selling, Bloom and Bucket will inspect, photograph, market, and sell your machine so you can focus on your rental business. If you're looking for new equipment, Bloom and Bucket has hundreds of inspected and guaranteed machines that you can browse and buy from your phone. See why the average buyer gives Bloom and Bucket a 9.5 out of 10 review. Check them out at boomandbucket.com. So maybe just for the listeners, just to, to give them a bit of a background a bit more. So can you explain exactly what Satisfied does and what type of solutions you provide? Yeah. So when I talk about, you know, the introduction, I talked about the customer experience and employee experience. And, and those are two kind of fancy words that we all use today for, and, and they encompass more, but kind of traditionally they would be referred to as customer satisfaction and employee satisfaction. And, and customer experience is a broad term that, that you know, sort of has all of the different categories of kind of customer journey mapping and understanding how your customer you know finds you and goes through the business and has the experience. But customer sat tends to be sort of that that survey process where we go out and collect information from the end customer and ask them, hey, how was the experience, the purchase experience, the rental experience, and what could we have done better, and and sharing that information back with the dealer. And so on the customer experience side of the customer sat side. We work with dealerships and OEMs getting transactional data out of their business systems or enterprise systems like SAP, pull that in, do what we call a survey selection to make sure that we're not over surveying a customer. We are asking the right customer the right questions. And then we distribute that invitation out and we can distribute via text or phone or email invite or you name it, right? We even did face-to-face interviews in India where someone would you know, kind of get on a bus and go out to a a producer, interview that producer uh, on a tablet and then come back and sync up. And then that data would sync our system. And, you know, someone in the middle of uh, Pune would be able to, a dealer in Pune, India would be able to look at the results. So on the customer side, it's all about making sure that we can get that insight from the customer back to the dealer or the OEM so they can drive change. On the employee side, it's real similar, right? We, we figure out how to get that survey to the employee, whether it's a uh, electronic invitation via email or phone, or in some cases, we've even done paper surveys out to employees where they either, you know, aren't, you know, they don't want to fill out a mobile survey or they don't want to fill out an online survey. So in the equipment industry, we've had to be real flexible as far as the mode and method that we collect data. But our goal is really just to drive that insight into the organization to be able to improve the business. Seth, any questions on that? No, it makes complete sense. I've got a few follow-up questions. So, so once you get that data, are you sharing that with just that one organization or is there like a, a pool where you, other companies can see how they rank against each other? Maybe like a net promoter score sort of thing. Yeah, no, great question. So we, we have been collecting benchmarks for almost 24 years in the equipment industry. And so we have a lot of great resources as far as understanding the trends and changes that have happened over the years, the different type of businesses, whether it's sales, part service, rental, and, and I think that's one of the de- things that the dealers really like about our offering is that not only can they see their individual store location, they can see their comparison to a division uh, within their own organization or to the organization score, but also we offer benchmarks for different industries. So we offer benchmarks for ag industry, for construction, for trucking, and then for sort of independent kind of general equipment dealers. And... I think all of those different levels of comparison are really important for a dealer to understand 
you know, at a location level, how am I doing? At a divisional level, if you have a large, so you have a 20, 30, 50 location dealer group. And then organizationally, when the CEO is starting to look at and say, hey, how are we doing? Are we performing? And then the CEO can also go and look and compare their, their net promoter scores and their individual question scores out to an aggregate benchmark that we're updating annually. Yeah, I think that's super helpful just to see how we think we're doing well, but let's check how we're doing well against other benchmarks. I think that's a really important way to measure uh, the business. Yeah, well, we had something, you know, some kind of relevant current data, you know, over the pandemic, a lot of people had supply chain issues. This podcast episode was sponsored by the Fleet Office. Get away from paper documents and spreadsheets and become more compliant by using a cloud-based fleet management software. Save money by streamlining your hire business and understanding your fleet and utilization better. Create quotes, invoices, allocate equipment and operators to jobs and easily compare your projected income with your current invoices, making you more profitable. Pre-starts, risk assessments, maintenance, timesheets, dockets and asset efficiency all managed on one easy to use platform. Learn more at thefleetoffice.com.au. And so we were seeing more and more kind of deterioration in the availability of, of parts scores. And so, of course, customers were going in there to get parts for certain products and stuff, and they were backordered or not in stock or things like that. And so if you had a, the ability to see that information and see a decline in your organization score, it was a great opportunity to proactively communicate to your customers and say, hey, listen, you know, we're all encountering supply chain issues, right? And we see that our scores are dropping in this key category of service delivery. And, you know, it, we just want to let you know we're doing our best. This is where we think things are going to start turning around. And, and I think our approach is really about how do you communicate and help set expectations with your customers. So I, I just bring that up because I think it was a, an interesting tidbit from the pandemic. Mm, no, definitely. I think once you roll out something like like a survey that, your customers are filling out regularly, like after every rental or whatever it might be in that, in that scenario. Yeah. I think you can really set the culture within your organization to almost be obsessed with getting results and answers from surveys. And it almost can like set off alarm bells when you get a bad survey. And it's like, let's call that customer straight away to find out what went wrong. And then you're shaping you're shaping your future customer experience based upon results of surveys. I think that's a really powerful way to measure a business. Yeah. You know, that kind of leads me into a different topic. Can I go on a slight tangent for a moment? Sure. You can go wherever you want. So one of the challenges of in implementing a customer experience program into dealerships is there's a whole bunch of different leadership styles, right? You have your command and control, you have like all these different approaches for how people like to run their businesses. And we've seen implementations vary across the board. And, and if there's one nugget that I would like to deliver to, to the listeners around how to implement these processes, I, I think it's really like communication, communication, communication. And, and you went to this, this you, you kind of went in this direction of, well, you know, I think this can really drive culture. Well, I think it can also freak people out and freak employees out, right? So imagine that you're in an organization, you haven't been conducting any surveys in the past, you haven't been asking your customers about satisfaction, and leadership sends an email around or doesn't, but let's assume that they're proactive and they send an email around saying, hey, 
Um, we're going to start doing the survey process and we're going to start getting feedback from customers after every rental experience. And we're so pumped up. We hope you're pumped up. Have a great day, right? Well, that email freaks people out because you've got, this is an individual's livelihood at the dealership. And if a customer now sends feedback in that says that the person in the rental department didn't deliver a quality experience, am I fired? Am I yelled at? What's going to happen to me? How are we using this data? Who's using this data? You know, what's going on? And in sort of the void of having a definition about how the organization is going to use that information, people freak out. And so my biggest suggestion for people that are looking at implementing a process or, or even have a process right now that, that they want to improve is share with your organization that this isn't an opportunity to beat up staff. It's not an opportunity to, you know, find a negative, some negative feedback and attack somebody in the organization. If you can introduce these programs in a positive way that talk about Hey, we're going to recognize employees that are doing great jobs and we're going to, you know, identify where we're having some challenges and we're going to give you the tools you need and the support you need to be able to figure out how to improve that experience for the customer. It, you know, if you need some help in resolution, if you need a GM to step in and, and call the customer, we're here to support this process. I think you will eventually get to a place where the organization culturally embraces meeting customer or exceeding customer expectations. I don't think that's normally how people introduce programs like this. Just as a, it's, we, we have a process on how we suggest you should implement with templates and things like that. But that's just one of the big things is, is beware of how you introduce these programs. <laughs> uh, I think that's a really good uh, introduction to listeners because they could see it as, as you mentioned, hey, we're going to implement it. We're not going to tell our staff about it. We're going to, they might see it as like a, a laser focus for uh, my particular role and how I'm interacting. but. I was just about to say, you can almost use it in the opposite effect. Like you can call customers when they give a really good score as well to say, oh, we, we noticed that you gave us a, a 10 out of 10 or a five out of five, whatever it might be. I uh, just want to thank you for that result. Why did you think we did like so good or what was different in this engagement? Oh, we noticed that Sam, when he got to our store or our, our, our job site, he was like, he helped us actually move the equipment to where, like whatever it might be that customers are saying, oh, Sam's actually doing a really good job as well. So you can use it the other way as well. Absolutely, 100% agree. First, I will tell you that customers are shocked, positive or negative, when they get a call back, when the survey is positive or negative, when they get a call back from the organization saying, I read your survey. Just so you know, customers are shocked because most surveys go into a black hole in an organization. It's not like Yelp and Google reviews where somebody's openly blasting you or openly recognizing you for a job well done, right? This is, it has the ability to go into a black hole. And so when you call a customer and you recognize and thank them for their feedback, shock number one, right? Shock number two is when you let them know that you are going to work to resolve their issue. Should be common. It's insane that it's not, but that will shock your customer. So if, if you do two things, it, you know, reach out to them, let them know that you got their feedback. You don't have to do it for every single one, definitely for every one where a customer has communicated that they're upset and you will be floored on, on the impact of that. The other thing I'll tell you is when you call a customer that has provided positive feedback about an employee experience or a certain thing that went on in the dealership, 
are all, they, they feel so good about that, right? Like, hey, I just want to let you know we got that survey. Thank you so much for giving Bob positive feedback. Sounds like you really went above and beyond. And I want to let you know as a CEO, as a GM, as a divisional manager, that we appreciate your business. And we really appreciate you taking the time to share us about share what a great job Bob did, right? I mean, those type of little interactions with the customer solidify that relationship above and beyond kind of just a general, you know, dealership that doesn't do any of those types of things. The other thing I find too is that organizations that, that really embed CX in their culture, they also recognize their employees. So when they get that positive feedback from that customer, they also share that information organization-wide and they say, hey, listen, Bob got recognized by one of our customers. This is what Bob did. Thanks, Bob. And, you know, amazing. It says a couple of things. Servicing the customer is something that we believe in and that we want to reinforce. And leadership is reading these survey comments. And so know that it's important. Mm. Yeah. And then next time that customer comes in, that employee is super excited to serve them again because they know that they've got that great feedback. It's a bit of a loop here. But it's- it is. Even in the negative, like even with the negative customer that had a bad experience, we've all been there, right? How many times have you had a bad experience? Somebody reached out, took care of it for you. And then when you went back, you feel like you're more sort of loyal to that organization because they went above and beyond to resolve an issue. And you're more likely to give them a break in the future if something falls down or doesn't work perfectly because they took care of you. Uh, it, it works both ways and it's awesome. Yeah. Definitely. And so distributing these surveys, you mentioned a few methods. Is there one that really is the most popular or the best response rate? It's a, another excellent question. So kind of, and, and I'll say that, you know, right now we use text, email, phone, and paper as key methods for, for data collection. The least costly methods for data collection are, are text and, and email. The highest response rates that we get tend to be paper and phone. Now, having said that, we are relatively agnostic when it comes to what mode, right? Our goal is how do we collect the best data for you at the lowest cost so that we can you know, have an effective partnership and drive more value for your organization. Um, and so like or, some organizations feel really strongly that they want to have a phone call out to that customer. And so what we do is we have distri- different distribution modes. And so you can do like a text to an email, to an email reminder, to a phone or you could do a text to an email to a paper survey. And so we have different ways that dealerships can configure that setting. At the end of the day, we're just really trying to optimize uh, on decreasing cost while increasing response rates. And our response rates tend to to be anywhere between kind of 10 to 15% on the digital side up and into 20 to 30% on the the non-digital side. Mm. Yeah, I think... Maybe also the more customers realize that people are actually doing stuff with the surveys, the response rate would increase as well. The first few times they get a text message, they're like, oh, just another message. But then they realize, oh, yeah, I, I want to give a response here because I know they're going to do something with the data. So it's it's probably, I wouldn't judge the response rate in the first like 30 days or whatever it might be. It's a it's a duration where you got to like build up that, that uh, engagement with the customer as well. Yeah, you know, I've seen response rates as high as 50% uh, before. And what what I find fascinating is sometimes you'll see that on OEM sponsor programs because the dealership's being held accountable by the OEMs and hit certain benchmarks and maybe they're gaming the system, maybe they're handing out some hats, uh, whatever it is, right? Like, but on the dealer side, you know, it it doesn't really happen as much because the dealer's paying for the process and they're really leveraging the data. And I found a dealer that was getting a 50% response rate and I reached out to the dealer and I'm like, what are you doing? 
Like, why? How is this even possible? You know, this is awesome. And the dealer's like, you know, we have a laminated copy of the paper survey on a steel little chain, like the pen chain on the desk that keeps the pen from walking away. We've got a laminated copy of the survey on the parts desk and on the service desk. And when a customer comes up, we hold up the survey and we say, hey, you might get one of these in the mail. Do us a favor. This feedback is absolutely critical to us being able to serve you the best we can. If you get one of these, can you just fill it out for us? Give us your candid feedback. We don't, you know, don't need to give us a perfect score. Just tell us how we're doing. You know, we really appreciate it. At 50% response rate. Wow. That's, that's <laughs> crazy, isn't it? How many questions are normally on these sort of surveys? Because you obviously can't do too many. Otherwise, the person's going to get distracted and not do it. So like, what's the, what's the usual number of questions? Yeah, typically like around 11 questions, I think are what our surveys are. We, we've done OEM surveys in the past that can you know, exceed 20 or 30 questions with asking a lot of product specific information. But uh, our, our typical kind of sales service parts rental surveys are about 11 questions. And, and we tend to get really good feedback on, on that short of a survey. It also is nice because you can complete it on mobile and it's not over, overwhelming. The thing I always tell people on surveys is depending on the level of product affinity. So if you have a really high product affinity, you bought a tractor or a dozer and you love it and you just, you know, it's, it's the best thing you've ever done. You're much more likely to fill out a longer survey. If, if you're just having a short experience, I went in and picked up a, a part or I just, you know, had a quick rental experience, you know, you want something short and sweet and to the point. Mm. Yeah. I can imagine someone's going and renting their chainsaw. They don't want an 11 question survey after every, every rental. So I think it yeah, needs to be, how was your rental experience? How easily did we get the equipment onto your job site? Like all that sort of stuff. How accurate was our billing? Like what are, what are some of those sort of questions? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, and you can even simplify it beyond that, right? Like you can just, a lot of times people will just ask a simple NPS question, like overall willingness to recommend and any comments and, yeah. uh, and can make it really simple. So there's, there's, there's a thousand different ways to do this. I, I, the goal is just, these are your customers. So, you know, don't overburden them with your market research questions, your 50, you know, your 50 question product survey, things like that. Keep it short, simple. And if you need it, where I, I think one little side side, a lot of organizations kind of get confused between a, a transactional experience survey and a market research survey. And they think, hey, we're, we're going out to that customer. We're going to ask that chainsaw customer about their experience. But while we're at it, why don't we ask a 20-question a, a survey on the, that chainsaw's ability to cut, its ease to start, right? All of the, the key components of that. And, uh, and what I tell people is, listen, don't, don't burden your transactional experience survey with those questions. If you want to run a market research survey, do it. You know, give somebody a, a $10 gift certificate to Amazon or whatever, pick a hundred customers out there, send them a longer survey and send them to take it, but don't pollute your transactional experience survey with a bunch of market research questions that should be held by, off by themselves. So Yeah, definitely. And so you, you mentioned the, um, the starting of the organization and then that affiliation with John Deere. When did you first get involved in the equipment rental industry with surveys? Like what was that transition? You know, so a lot of the dealers that we work with have rental arms. And so, you know, it's all, you know, they're, they're selling those products, they're servicing, they're doing parts, and then they have rental. So I, I gosh, I'm trying to think, we may have been doing rental for 10 or 15 years now. 
where the, the way we really work is we, when we engage with the dealership, we have a, you know, sort of a handful of different transactions that they can send us. So they can send us sales data, parts data, service data, rental data. We're able to identify what kind of data that is directly out of the business system with integrations with like, you know, auto IT in Australia, CDK, you know, different business systems that we've built with Equip. And so once we identify that, then we select a survey and distribute it. And so for us, you know, we, we can do one or all of those. So, so if we were just working with a purely rental dealer, we would just simply send rental surveys. Yeah, I like that a lot. And so if someone is out of working at maybe a small organization and customer experience isn't even a terminology that's thrown around in that business, they've been running for 30 years, no one's really ever thought about it, what a loyal customer base, and someone wants to roll out uh, some type of surveys in within their business, cost is a problem because no one, like some people don't want to spend the money. The owner doesn't want to spend the money. How would someone normally justify that, that cost and explain maybe the, the benefit of it? Yeah. Well, so now I'm going to draw on a little bit of my investment banking background. I've always, finance has always been a passion for me. And I'll kind of explain some of the challenges of this, but the real simple math is if you look at a typical customer at an organization, right? So let's say that Let's say that a customer comes into your organization and typically spends, I don't know, what, what do you think of a good customer? 10,000 bucks a year is a good customer? Exactly, yeah. yeah. Okay. For, a small, yep, for a small business, I'd say. Yeah, so let's say that we have a, a, a typical uh, customer that's spending 10 grand at your dealership. And, you know, I don't know, let's say that we have a thousand of those customers. And so if I'm doing my math right, a uh, thousand customers at 10 grand, I think a $10 million business. Does that sound right? So thousand customers at 10,000 bucks a pop is a $10 million annual revenue business. So just to kind of give some order of magnitude. So let's say that each year, 5% of those customers are identified as what we typically call a defector or a detractor. If you use NPS methodology, that we call a detractor. So 5% of that $10 million is going to be a half million bucks. So if we do get 5% attrition annually, we have $500,000 walking out the door. And I'm not talking about, you know, 5% being, hey, a customer went out of business or some of those uncontrollables, right? I'm just talking in general, the service quality was, we had a service failure or an issue and they decided to, to bail. So that's a half million bucks. And everyone's like, wow, that's a lot of money. You know, that's your initial step of quantification, right? In my mind. The second step is, is that if you want to get a little fancier, we we've all kind of heard the term customer lifetime value. And so now we have to extrapolate that a little bit. And we say, well, how long is this customer going to be doing business with us? How long is our average customer stick around? So let's say that that number is 20 years. So typical customer is going to be around for 20 years. So now we're saying, all right, we have 5% attrition annually. And that attrition, that customer is not going to do business with us for 20 years. Now, there's all sorts of variables and people are going to argue with them and things like that. But now we're talking about a $500,000 that leaves for 20 years and doesn't come back and goes to the competition at 10 million bucks. So you pick the number you want to look at, 500,000, 10 million bucks of, of customer lifetime value. Either one of those numbers can be a basis. Now, over the years, anytime I've presented those two numbers to an organization, big or small, and, and quantified them for their, their revenue, I tend to sort of get brushed off. Right, like, well, you know, how much of it, what's the defection? How much attrition are we really getting? All that type of stuff. And so 
you know, you can move those numbers around really easily, right? Let's say instead of for that $10 million, let's say instead of 500,000 or 5%, let's say it's 1%, 1% attrition annually or $100,000, you know, is going out and that $100,000 over, you know, 20 years is 2 million bucks. Pick, pick your numbers. Uh, but the reality is you should ask yourself, what's attrition costing your business annually? What is attrition costing your business and a customer lifetime value? And what does it cost to implement a customer experience management program that helps you retain annual and customer lifetime value, you know, sort of dollars? Does that make sense? Yeah, that no, makes complete sense. And I think that's probably the, the, the challenge that most people go down is they go straight to the, the cost of, the, of, that, of that software rather than figuring out what the attrition cost is for that, for that lifetime value, as, as you mentioned. Yeah, it's, you're 100% accurate. And, and I think that if you'd meet with the CFO and you'd have the conversation and say, you know, what was our attrition last year? You're going to get a number. They're going to have it off the top of their head. And then if you ask the question, hey, what do you think that, that the, the amount of that attrition, what do you think was based on sort of uncontrollables? And what do you think was based on service quality failure or service failures? Um, and there's your number. Don't even tell them why you're asking. <laughs> <laughs> now, now we're going to have a bunch of CFOs annoyed that they've got a bunch of people coming asking for their attrition numbers. Hey, tell them why you're asking. I was just kidding. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. No, that's good. That's, that's a good example. I think it's important for you to think that through a little bit as well. So I like that you were bringing your finance game to that one. It's, you know, I've, I've built models before too, like Excel models where you could plug in like, okay, you don't believe me. You don't believe, you know, like plug in your own numbers, right? Like figure it out. And, and I just, at the end of the day, it's real, it's financial. It's just a matter of whether or not you want to recognize it. Yeah, definitely. And so you mentioned also that you can use these surveys for internal staff as well. So what sort of questions would you be asking uh, internal staff with these surveys? Yeah, so when I, when I spoke about employee uh, satisfaction or employee experience, about... I don't know, five or 10 years ago, we were meeting with our customers and saying, hey, what kind of other solutions should we deliver? And uh, we started, you know, we partnered with a, a dealer up in Canada and, and built an employee stat survey process. And really that process is about going in and, and asking employees, you know, how, how, how do you feel about leadership, right? Do you feel like they're going in the right long-term direction? Are they communicating to you? You know, all those sort of perceptions of, of how the staff think leadership's delivering for their organization. And then there's a whole bunch of questions about like, not a whole bunch, but a handful of questions about benefits, right? Are you getting the right benefits? You know, do you feel like you have upward mobility? Are you, feel, you know, is there training opportunities? So really all those traditional things uh, that employees are thinking about as far as why it's important to stay in, at a company that they're working with, are they, are, you know, are they getting the right pay? Are they getting the right benefits? Are they getting the right training, upward mobility? But the one thing I find really fascinating about the employee experience process or the employee survey process is, is it's a pretty hard sell into dealers. And so, you know, the, everybody gets the customer sat process, right? Oh yeah, we got to ask our customers. We got to figure out how we're doing. But I think that, that dealers, and I'm sure companies in general, I think that they can be nervous about the feedback that they're going to get, right? I think leaders uh, get nervous about some of the potential negative feedback that, that they're, they're concerned that they're, they're not going to like what they hear. Uh, we've, 
You know, we've even had companies that we've worked with ask us to remove certain comments from the feedback so that leaders wouldn't see it. I believe that dealerships are having to transition and businesses in general are having to transition from a more command and control type environment to a more collaborative sharing and engaging environment to retain staff. I mean, I'm not sure how it is in Australia, but in the US, there's a technician shortage and they are struggling to find technicians and they're struggling to retain technicians. And if we're not asking the technicians, hey, do you like your job? Do you think the pay's fair for the work you're doing? Are the benefits in alignment with your expectations? You run the risk of having defecting employees on the technician side. And, and, and in general, we're, we're struggling to retain staff because people are no longer interested in the command and control environment. So I don't know what needs to change on the employee satisfaction side, but I can tell you that there is all sorts of studies that, that show the correlation between customer experience and employee experience, i.e. a happy employee that likes their job and enjoys what they're doing delivers a better experience to the customer. And mm-hmm. so, you know, my, my recommendation for your dealers are, it doesn't have to be a huge fancy survey, you know, like just get something out there, ask about how you're doing. Don't be afraid of the feedback that you're going to get. And the last kind of key point on that is if you do ask your employee feedback, and this is maybe one of the reasons why people aren't happy, but if you do ask your employees for feedback, you have to do something with it and you have to let them know what you heard. So we tell, you know, we, we have templates, you know, when we do this to show uh, organizations or dealerships, what they need to communicate post-completion of the employee survey and the templates like, Hey, this is what we heard from our staff. Here are the top three things that we heard. And based on that, here's the top three things that we're going to implement before we do the next survey, either six months of the pulse or 12 months afterwards. And if you don't do that, once again, to your point about customer surveys and increasing response rates, employees will stop responding to the survey if they feel like their feedback's falling on deaf ears. But once again, super critical to the customer experience, not something that a lot of organizations seem to love to do, um, but I'm not sure how you're going to identify gaps in performance and gaps in, in experiences at your dealership if you don't ask. Mm. Yeah, no, all, all very good advice. Love it. So, so recently you were over in Florida for the John Deere user group. How was that? What's the purpose of that, of that user group and, and what did you get out of it? Yeah, yeah, we've been going for years. It's an interesting uh, group. So uh, J-Dub was originally put on for, uh, I think it was mostly dealership IT staff as a way to come together collectively and kind of share best practices and talk about the technology that they're doing and learn about some of the different solutions out there. Um, And my understanding, I may be getting some of this wrong, but my understanding is, is it kind of morphed into a broader, a broader uh, conference where John Deere dealers could come in, they could take some classes that were either put on by, you know, either by dealers, by, you know, partners of John Deere or by John Deere themselves on different technologies, different best practices, different solutions and things like that. And so it's, it's just a great opportunity to engage with other partners out there. You know, like we were able to meet with other, you know, CRM partners and providers and talk about how we can integrate our platforms, drive more value for the dealers. We're able to meet face-to-face with the dealers and understand how we can evolve our, our products and our solutions to drive greater value. It's just a, it's a fantastic opportunity for dealers to get together 
uh, with other dealers and other providers to uh, to understand what where things need to go. So, yeah, and I think those sort of environments are great as well because often you're talking to people and it's a very short engagement. You're talking to someone and it's over. When you go to these conferences, like you're sort of at like almost like a bit of a boot camp, and so you're building up rapport, relationships. You're you're learning about other people and. I feel like those sort of things, it's almost like a trade show on steroids, really. Well, I think, you know, these dealers historically have been doing business face-to-face. You know, they're going out and meeting their customers. Their customers are coming in, they're seeing them. It's a very uh, person-to-person type business. And I think when you have that type of business, like these type of shows give you the opportunity to have that those face-to-face interactions and, they build relationships, they build credibility, they build trust. I think they're fantastic. Now, a lot changed with the pandemic, but you get back face-to-face in events like this and it, it's kind of right back to where everything was and, and building those relationships with dealers. So it's a, it's a great opportunity. Very nice. All right, we're going to move on to our rapid fire questions. So just got a few short questions here, short answers uh, off the top of your head and just want to learn a little bit more about who is Ryan Condon? So he already answered a couple of these, but we'll still go through them. So where did you grow up? Uh, Naperville, Illinois, 30 miles outside of Chicago. But a little fun fact for those, those dealers out there is I was actually born in Fargo, North Dakota. And so uh, for those people that, that aren't familiar with Fargo, it is very far north and very cold. Yeah, I think Bobcat's up there, aren't they? Bobcat of Fargo? They sure are. Yeah, actually yeah. Bobcat Corporate's up there. Yeah, I thought so. Yeah, very nice. Uh, what's your morning routine? Oh, it depends. So uh, I typically get up around 5.30, 6 o'clock. I've got four uh, kids. So, you know, kind of getting everybody shuffled off and out to school. If I could squeeze in a run between 5.30 and 6.30 a.m. before I'm on the job with my family, I try to get that done. If not, I'll usually do that during a lunch break. But yeah, I've always been a morning person. So getting up, uh, making my coffee, sitting back and uh, enjoying the time with my family before they head off to school. When are you most productive? The morning. So I would say my optimum time is like eight to 12. You know, it's just such a, it's such a great time to be able to think through life's challenges and things. And by the afternoon, I think things are flying at you from all directions. And so definitely morning. What do you like doing outside of work? Lots of different things. So I really enjoy uh, mountain biking. I've been doing that for years. So getting out there and kind of, you know, being out in nature and, uh, you know, having some of those challenges. Really enjoy that. I'm, I'm a runner. I'm more of a social runner, though, so I'm not necessarily going to say I love to go out and run, you know, 20 miles by myself. But you know, going out and running six or seven miles with a group of people has always been fun. Um, I, I truly enjoy being outdoors. Uh, we recently uh, got an RV, and so we've been enjoying that with the family, which has been a blast. They're probably my big ones. Austin provides a lot of fantastic opportunities to be outdoors, whether it's on the lake or trails or things like that. So, yeah, very nice. All right. And, and finally, uh, you can put a little bit more time on this answer. Uh, how do you define success? It's an interesting one. I, you know, I think from 48, and I really think that the answer to this question has changed uh, over the years for me. I think early in my career, I was pretty money focused. You know, I was investment banking. It was the opportunity to make a lot of money and be successful. Uh, I found out early on that that really, you know, I needed something more, something different that just, you know, going after the, the almighty dollar wasn't the answer for me. And, and now I'm at a place in my life where I need to, I really need to 
figure out how to, I, I need to be interested in what I'm doing and I need to deliver value, right? So when I'm working with a, a customer to understand kind of what they need and then I deliver that solution and someone comes back and is like, Ryan, this is incredible, right? I'm doing this and I'm learning this and you've helped me do this and, and this is fantastic. Like that, that positive reinforcement for me is really powerful. Um, and so success for me, I think, is being able to understand, at least on the business side, right? It's understanding what our customers need, being able to deliver it, and then getting that feedback that, that we actually delivered what they need. I think on the, on the personal side, I'm not sure if that was part of the question, but, you know, with, with four young children, I think so much of success is, is watching them grow up and, and feeling like you're getting them on the right path, you're giving them the right tools, that they're growing up well-balanced, that they have a good work ethic, that they're, they're quality humans, they're delivering, you know, they're, they're giving back to other people, that they're polite, generous. So, you know, I, I think it, a lot of it probably is circular in the sense of what I want out of business and what I want out of life and my children are, you know, I, I, I want to be able to have them be able to, you know, add value, do things well, and feel like that's a positive contribution to the world. Yeah, very nice. Do you think that once you started the business with your father, that's when your mindset shifted? Or was it later on? You know, it's really interesting. So a little bit of, of background on this. I, I told my dad I'd only work with him for three years. And that was 24 years ago. And, and so coming home and starting this business, really didn't have anything to do with money, right? I was like, my dad and I had always been really close and still are to this day. And, uh, and so for me, it was more of just a, hey, my dad needed my help and I'm going to come home and do it. But, you know, I'm, this isn't, I'm, I'm not going to you know, do this for my life. And so I think the fact that I didn't have any ambitions in starting this business really above and beyond just helping my dad out made it a lot less about trying to, you know, make more money or do whatever. And I just, it was more of just kind of a passion play, right? It was doing something with a really good friend of mine, my father, someone, you know, I love dearly and have been really close to. And so I think that the big difference for me was, is that the motivation was much deeper for me to have success at that time. And, and then over the years, the business itself for me has just helped me learn so much about who I am. And, you know, and that's, that's been, it, it holds the mirror up to you in, in good times and in bad times. And uh, just makes you really look at and assess what you're doing and why you're doing it. And so it's been an amazing growth opportunity for me personally. So, yeah, I think, I think the big thing for me is it's just, there was no real financial motivation to starting this business for me, which is probably not normal for people. Yeah. It must be really fulfilling knowing that you started with nothing and then you built up a business with your family member, your father, like that must be an amazing feeling in itself. You know, it's incredible. Um, and, and in the last four years, um, I've been uh, mentoring uh, startups here in Austin for uh, an accelerator called Techstars. And it's been really rewarding leveraging all of that, you know, 24 years of experience building satisfied to help these founders who are right back where I was when I was, what, 24 years old, when I started Satisfied with my dad, helping them figure out how do you navigate the challenges of building a business and, 
And then over the last four years, watching some of those founders really turn their businesses into something amazing. It's been, it's been awesome. Yeah, that's so good. Love it. All right, Ryan. Well, thank you for coming on the Rental Journal podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, it's been really great. This podcast episode was brought to you by our premier partner, Ken Arts Hire.